Hi, and thanks for downloading this episode of Queer I Am, the podcast. I really hope you enjoy it. This podcast started as a small idea and has turned into a real passion project for me and is something that I wish to continue to make way into the future, but I need your help in doing so. So there is a cost in making Queer I Am, the podcast, and it's something that I funded and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. But if you'd like to get involved and support the podcast by subscribing to Acast Plus, that would be incredible. And if this is something you can't do, no worries at all. I really hope you keep enjoying the episodes and I intend to keep making them for as long as possible. Season three is coming up and you are in for an absolute treat. I am so, so excited. If you'd like to support the podcast, details of how you can do this are in the blurb of the episode you were listening to. And what this also means is you get to listen to all of the episodes of Queer I Am The Podcast, past and future, completely ad-free. So no interruptions whatsoever. What could be better? Anyway, enough of the serious blurb. Let's crack on with the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today I'm speaking with an actor, theatre maker and HIV activist. This artist wrote a one-man show called First Time, which smashes through the stigma and shame of HIV to present an uplifting and inspirational guide to stay positive in a negative world. They are an activist and they use their voice to support underrepresented groups. And they were in a TV drama that you may have heard of called It's a Sin. Please welcome to the podcast, Nathaniel J. Hall. So whatever you're up to, this is your time to settle down, relax and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Queer I Am. So Nathaniel, thank you so much for being a guest on Queer I Am, the podcast season two. Um, this is an absolute thrill for me and something we've talked about for a few months now, I think. Um, so welcome. How are you doing oh, today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Queer yeah. I Am. I am yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So if you had a uh, song to reflect your mood today, what would that song be? <laughs> Ooh, well... Um, I have to wear this very carefully so okay. I don't upset or offend anyone. Um, I'm a staunch Republican, so I'm really struggling with okay. the, the pomp and pageantry that's on um, on display at the moment and the kind of enforced mourning that we're being put through. So my song for the minute is God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. By the Sex Pistols, okay. Because I'm, I'm, I'm calling for a little bit more anarchy in the UK. That's yeah. what I'm calling for at the Yeah, <laughs> I, I got that from your Twitter. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it, where... Um, I think until something like this happens, you kind of don't realise how much, um, I don't know, like... Power? Pa- yeah, power. <laughs> but power they have. And all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite mad, really. It's been a crazy week or so. And obviously there will be people that listen to this and will be like, 
we shouldn't be well, you know talking in a bad way but i think we've all got a right to have an well, opinion I, I, on that. absolutely i mean look i don't i don't begrudge or anyone you know if they want to mourn privately or in mm. their, or publicly in their own way and also you know let's regardless of your like opinion on monarchy or you know having um, a, a leader un- enforced upon you without mm. any kind of democratic process regardless of that though you know um i think for me it i think people should be allowed to do to to reflect in that way it's this idea that it's kind of being it's being enforced you know mm-hmm. there's all this stuff going you know i mean there's no balance at the minute very mm-hmm. very little balance around 20 to 40 percent of people depending on what study you look at in the uk want to abolish the monarchy mm-hmm. where is where is that impartiality on the bbc at the minute you mm-hmm. know it's not if you watch the bbc you would believe that the whole nation feels a certain way you know and the queen the queen regardless of your opinion was an important figurehead, worked mm-hmm. tirelessly, you mm-hmm. know, absolutely. I can totally respect that. And I can totally respect, and I would actually, had they not been having like live streams of the coffin line in state, you know, and kind of talking in hushed tones on, on radio all week, I probably would have watched the funeral on Monday, mm. you know, <laughs> but now I've kind of, too much. <laughs> yeah, now I've kind of just totally detached from it mm. and kind of gone the other way. But yeah, so anyway, so I'm feeling a little bit frustrated by that. I know that there are a lot of people that are feeling that way. Yeah, and I I think we should be able to talk about it. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. Um, I've always been fascinated with the royal family. And I think just, I think it's a sense of kind of, as you say, power, privilege. I don't know, just the kind of um, what it stands for, I guess. It's always kind of interested me and fascinates me. But I think having watched all the, um, or some of the stuff on the TV the other day around the different ceremonies and, I don't know. It, for me, it felt very, very archaic and just like, wow, are we really still doing this kind of stuff? It's just Andrew. Bit... Andrew, they're, they are. They're, don't worry. Don't panic. They are bringing the stone of destiny <laughs> from Edinburgh Castle down to London for the coronation of the king. I said this to my partner because I saw a news article. I was like, they're bringing the stone of destiny. Everything is fine. And he was like, is this parody? I was like, no, this is real. There is a stone that is kept in Edinburgh Castle that is brought down to Westminster for a coronation. So the last time it came down to London was obviously for the Queen's coronation. It is a big stone and it sits underneath the throne and it's got some kind of historical significance. It's called the Stone of Destiny. It is real. Like, parody is writing itself. (laughs) I feel like we've entered, like post 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 modernism like I, I don't even know what's real anymore yeah i know well do you know the other day i had a, a colleague um that went to see a comedy show at the theater and before the show started the national anthem was played and everyone had to stand and mourn the queen for a minute oh, i mean i would have walked out yeah I, yeah i mean I, yeah i mean you know i'm all about respect but actually i'm you know no one should force anyone especially when you're going to see a comedy show i mean that's just a bit yeah. I don't know. Anyway, we we could talk about this all day, and um, I think it's a completely different podcast. But no, I I do resonate with your your feelings on this one, and I think it's a good choice. So, everyone, if everyone wants more content, come to my Twitter. Basically. Yeah, that's your five more. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I like your Twitter. It's really entertaining. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so, where did you grow up originally, uh, Nathaniel? Where do you call home now? So I grew up in a, a village called Gatley. A, a village. It sounds like I'm like it's some rural idyll. It's in Stockport, which is like a growth on the base of Greater Manchester. Okay. And I actually still live in the house that I grew up in. So, oh wow. Um, uh, so I I have moved out. I've done a very Bridget Jones thing and moved back with my parents. Um, so I uh, um, 
yeah, went off and did everything, university, travelled the world, kind of had relationships and then one very, very spectacularly failed and I moved back. Sorry, can you hear my dogs? I can hear the dogs, no, cool. <laughs> podcast. I knew, I knew that there's been no one come to the door all day and I knew as soon as we started this, someone would come to the door. So Do you want me, should, should we carry on? Shall Let's I wait carry on. It's, this is real stuff. We don't Zoom. It's one of those things. Okay. Um, no worries. So, um, so yeah, so I moved back, back in with my parents and it was really fortuitous actually because um, it was just before the pandemic hit. Oh, wow. Okay. And so, and as an artist, you know, my, my income was decimated and mm-hmm. it's been really nice, you know, to spend that time this time and I've been here for nearly three years, but I'm about to move to Salford. I have bought a house. Yes. Um, you said the other day when we spoke, you and your partner have bought a house. That's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Are you excited? Yeah, which is, yeah, which is something as a kind of a queer with quite a chaotic past. Okay. <laughs> I never thought it would happen. <laughs> so I feel like I'm doing what most heterosexual people do in their kind of like mid 20s i'm just like 10 years late so it's fine oh go with it no so i, I think everything in its right time and it's lovely that you've been able to kind of go back and and spend time with your folks because it has been a weird couple of years hasn't it what was it like though i'm interested to ask this question what was it like moving back with your parents because i did that once when i was in my early 20s and it was the biggest mistake i ever made sorry parents <laughs> but it was hell so how was it for you i mean with maturity did it feel a bit better or I'm, I'm, I think I'm very lucky because my parents are really, really chilled out. Okay. So, so, you know, and very much when we lived here, like my mum, my mum was a, a, a deputy head teacher and my dad was a full time job as well. So like I'm one of four and we had to like, by, by I think by the age of 10, I was cooking dinner once a week. Like okay. we had a night a week to cook. Like we had to do our own washing. So we were very, very independent from, from right from the out. So there wasn't that thing of coming back, you know. I've got a few friends who've come back, and their mum, like their mum, has like started to do their washing again. They're like, they're like, mum, look, I don't, I don't want you to do my washing. It's like no. I'm fine, I can do it. Like I'm an adult, you know, or like cooking them dinner, or you know, and it's absolutely fine here. Um, I think they've got a big house as well, so they were, we're, we're family of six. We were a family of six. Everyone's obviously moved out now, but so they've got a big house, it's big enough to accommodate like the three of us more than big enough, you know. I've yeah. got my own space. Um, and they've got a hot tub in the garden, so which like, is awesome. <laughs> which sounds so so achingly like middle class, but it's, my mum just had a midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> my it's normally the same it's, thing. It's normally it's normally the man, but it yeah. is my mum, and she had it craned over the house. I was in Australia, the first Christmas I'd ever spent abroad. I thought my mum might like wire me some money or something. You know, I was kind of like traveling yeah. the world or whatever. No, she just sent me an email going, "Bought a hot tub. Look, we had to have the road closed, lol, and it was being craned over the house." Wow. Okay, that's a story. <laughs> that's amazing. My uh, my mum bought one actually a few years ago during lockdown, and it was one of these like inflatable ones, but it still had like lights in it, and you could hook up your iPhone and play your music and all this kind of stuff. And it's gone now; it didn't last very long. But okay. at, at the time, I was like, "Wow, this is this is quite interesting." Like, I didn't think I'd see the day where there was a hot tub in my kind of like childhood garden. Um, and also, then then she was like, "You know, you should come around and jump in the hot tub." And I'm like, "This no." <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's a theory about hot tubs and hygiene and all that kind of stuff. So, I'm, yeah, I won't go into that now. But um, I don't know. Sharing a hot tub with um, people outside of your kind of significant other, I don't know if it's always a <laughs> good thing. Yeah, it's, it seems like a slightly <laughs> odd invitation when it comes it to your mom, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Absolutely. So what was it like growing up in Stockport as, you know, a queer kid? How did you kind of find the environment that you were in? And and obviously you're moving to Salford. So I guess you're, very, as you said, very near Manchester. So you've got an amazing queer scene there. Um, but growing up, kind of what was that like for you? You know, I mean, I, I left school in 2003. So it's like mm-hmm. 
it's like a lifetime ago. It's mm. like a totally different world, you know, equal marriage, not a thing, civil partnership, not a thing, you know, mm. kind of rights for kind of adoption, not a thing. So it was a very, very different world. Section mm. 28 was repealed the year I left school. So a very, very different world. We've just come so far so rapidly, mm. really, I think. And Stockport, you know, was like any kind of small town, really. Although I was in close proximity to Manchester City Centre, until I knew that place existed, it right. might as well have been London. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't yeah. matter that it's just down the road. Until you're, and also, you know, the queer scene very much is, is geared around being 18 plus, you mm. know. So for a teenager, it's not really, although, you know, the bright lights did bring me in probably about by about 16. So, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, illegally sneaking in places. But, you know, my school was was like any other sort of comprehensive high school like sexuality was not openly talked about there was Mm. a few people who you know were bullied because they were perceived as gay i was one of those people you know it was never really dealt with in the same way that like say maybe racist bullying would be dealt with it was kind of this thing that it was the you know, it was okay to say, to use gay as a derogatory term. Mm-hmm. I remember even having a conversation with an English teacher who was like saying, well, language changes all the time. So people, you know, use the word like this. And it was like, oh, great. That's a lovely message to hear from your teacher. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, <clears throat> so, um, so yeah, it was, I mean, my family are really supportive and loving, but I think I grew up in a world where I didn't know that being gay was okay, mm-hmm. where I felt really, really like comfortable to just be Mm-hmm. openly myself whereas I, I knew that I was different from a very young age like most queer people will tell you yeah I, I agree Me, I, I was the same I think I, so I left school in 2000 so a few years before you um, and yeah so I can say 2003 obviously is when section 28 was repealed and it's something that I've, I've mentioned a few times recently on these episodes and um, you know didn't kind of realise the impact of that legislation until years later when I investigated it and then looked back at my schooling years and was like actually that was really crap like if we'd had better policies and support in place maybe things would have been easier for our generation to come out to be authentic and to be ourselves so i think um you're right there's a a lot has happened since then and it's come a long way but actually at that time when you're in that situation it's really tough isn't it and it's yeah hard to know where you fit into the world yeah it's interesting you say because i think i felt like i grew up in quite an enlightened time Mm. you know what i mean like compared to previous decades and what Mm. i kind of knew of those previous decades but actually like you say it's only with hindsight you look back and you go actually it really wasn't no it was a lot of stuff that where where young people weren't being supported in the way Mm. that they should be mm-hmm. and you know you think about like uh, uh, the 90s was such in terms of like queer representation were like like a barren desert like the 80s was so queer mm-hmm. you look at 80s music like okay people weren't necessarily like openly out and mm-hmm. obviously there was lots of insinuation and then obviously there was a homophobic press that would out people but music was really queer and and then you get to the nineties and it just like it's like it just goes. And mm. I don't know whether that's an impact of Section Twenty Eight or the rising kind of homophobic rhetoric that came from the Tory government or whatever mm. it was. But you know, you got like Scott Mills, for instance, on Radio One, a gay DJ, never talking about being gay ever. Yeah. It was like it was this un written censorship that was mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. very very strange and now you look at like tv and film and music and it's full of amazing queer role models mm. you know and actually you think god i had none of those when i was growing up no well i, I think the only role model I, I truly had probably was the spice girls and mm. i didn't realize how much of a role model they were until years later because i yeah. felt like and i can only 
kind of explain it by years later thinking, wow, it was like I felt like I fitted in somewhere. When I felt odd and different, there was like this gang of girls where I felt like I could just lose myself in. And yes. um, I've actually today just picked up Melanie C's autobiography and I'm so excited because there's going to be so many stories from that time in there so i can't wait to read that this weekend um but yeah i think there was no no real representation and i think that that was only years later looking back i was like ah that's why i connected so much because it was just like there was a place where you could go and you could be yourself without judgment um but even at that time they weren't really shouting that they were shouting girl power um now they're shouting in a different way actually you know it's equality for all and their recent tour they did it was very much about you know all genders all sexualities all races all that kind of stuff but at the time, I don't think they probably could shout as loud as maybe they would now because of the time yeah. it was. Um, yeah. But I still felt that affiliation. But well, obviously, we talk about TV. Um, so I became aware of your work from uh, from It's a Sin um, a year or so ago. And I know that obviously your your work predates that. Um, and obviously, you were a love interest. Uh, you played Donald Bassett for uh, Richie. Um, who, Richie, I just absolutely fell in love with. That <laughs> was heartbroken <laughs> all in five hours. I just oh, oh my god. Yeah. Richie was a bit was a bit mean as well. How did he fall in love? He's a bit of an anti-hero, Richie. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I just there was just something about him. I just yeah, I don't know. I think there was like a I don't know, like a bravery and like a resilience and like a Or was it just that it was Ollie Alexander? Yeah, I think he was a bit hot as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do I do think all those other qualities were there as well. I think he, he, there was just something about him that was quite unapologetic and brave and I just yes. can only imagine how difficult that would have been at that time do you know what I mean so um but yeah and obviously I then followed you and lots of the other cast on Instagram and I became aware of your your play and your book um first time which we'll talk about um in a bit more detail um but where you know where did your love of performance and the arts actually come from initially and how did you kind of think okay this was my my you know my path my choosing of a career um well I always say because my mum has been into amateur dramatics her whole life okay. um, and still is. I think she does more work now. She's retired for the oh, theatre. Wow. She's a chair. She's a chairperson of the theatre now. But she, um, <clears throat> she, um, she was in a play when I, when she was pregnant with me, um, uh, and it was a play where she had to um, wear a bikini. Um, <clears throat> and my mum used to have a banging figure and she's you know wear a bikini and, and they did the play and then she got pregnant and then they said they were going to revive it for a, I think it was for a festival or something and she was like yeah in like six months time I'm going to be like <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she had to she had to she had to disguise it with a, a magazine in front of her belly while she sat down. So wow. could see that she was like <laughs> heavily pregnant with me. So I was I was treading the boards before I was even bored. But I grew up in that environment, like going to that that like community theatre with my mom. You mm-hmm. know, um, the, the, I always talk to people about the smell of a theatre, mm. like old theatres particularly. There's the costume room and the backstage has this smell. It's basically dust. Mm. But yes, <laughs> that's why it's probably why I'm asking these days um but basically it's kind of this like sort of slightly smoky dusty kind of mm. smell and it, it kind of it gets inside you and, it, mm. and, and and every time i smell it it takes me straight back but we used to go when my mum would be the church the the theater she was she's part of used to be in a converted church it was converting to a theater but it was an old church so it was kind of this slightly creepy slightly weird you know like with long mm-hmm. corridors where you'd like look over your shoulder just in case you saw a ghost kind of thing <laughs> but you know like hiding between the costume rails and you know all of this kind of stuff and backstage as a kid was really exciting so i think that's where it came from and 
and then I, you know, I joined the youth theatre there and then that became like sort of youth theatres in Manchester, like the Royal Exchange Youth Theatre mm-hmm. and that became the National Youth Theatre and it sort of all kind of snowballed. I was doing dance classes when I was in my teenage years and, mm-hmm. and I just always knew that it was something that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But as much being in, in like the centre of attention, which is always very nice, but mm-hmm. as much being kind of behind scenes as well and kind of whether that's directing I know stage managing designing all the all those things I I really mm-hmm. I just love doing anything to do mm-hmm. with live live theater really I guess it's great creativity isn't it it's about kind of putting your stamp on something but also just being involved in the art I think it's that's it, it, it's a passion isn't it I think it's something that you have to really love yeah and it's a I think it's quite a unique skill set as well particularly not not necessarily if you're a, a performer but if you're a director or a mm. producer or what you're doing is you need to be creative but also you need to be really organized you need to have a lot of like a skill set that kind of doesn't often sit with the kind of pure Mm. creative mindset Mm -hmm. you know you need to be able to like manage big teams you need to be able to schedule you need to be able to there's all these kind of moving parts that all Mm. come together to that one moment and Mm -hmm. it, it really excites me like how all those moving parts work and how you work together to create something and you kind of with theater i would say it's like you're, you're like painting a picture but mm. it's moving and there's sound <laughs> right? yeah, so like and, it, and it's like and it's it's so exciting when it when it really really works and mm. and you get that buzz from from an audience from all the hard work that you've done so yeah i got i got hooked at a young age and i've i've, I've loved it ever since I guess it's like um a bit like a business isn't it it's kind of like all these different moving parts or like a big jigsaw and like any job there are parts that are really mundane but then it's the rewards as you say at the end when you're putting on a show and something really amazing is happening and people are loving your work that must feel incredible um so obviously you're the the co-artistic director of dibby theater um and you've been involved in lots of of different uh projects which we'll we'll obviously come on to um do do you think that the creative aspect of what you do um is just as important as the performance or do you think there's like is it the performing for you at the end of it, which really is a standout? I mean, do you, I think you've said it, but you love equally every part of it, but actually does one thing really stand out? Yeah, I I mean, yeah, like standing on stage, you know, and getting kind of that immediate feedback, you know, if you've, 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 planned and prepared and then the joke lands you know mm. you get a standing ovation which you know first time often got a standing ovation it feels great like it, mm. it, obviously it feels really good but it's kind of a fleeting thing and actually you know working and facilitating other people to get to that point is really exciting for me as well mm-hmm. I mean I do sometimes joke that like like I became an artist and all I seem to do is spreadsheets like <laughs> spreadsheets and applications you know the theatre is great but it is a very expensive art form yeah. like I could have chosen a cheaper art form do you know uh-huh. what I mean like yeah. is the, it is TV and film is the next one up but theatre is still ex- very very expensive to make yeah. so you know so there's a lot of trying to find money and making it all work but I really love doing that and I really love seeing other you know um, performers kind of grow and develop another artist and at Dibby Theatre we have a talent development program for LGBTQ plus creatives so we did Amazing. a writing course um, a writing course last year this year and um, subject to funding we've got a whole range of kind of producing opportunities and kind of shadowing opportunities for LGBTQ people to learn about how the theatre how theatre is made yeah. and develop their skills and I really love seeing that I really like I, I think as you move up the ladder, you should always be aware of who's just beneath you. Mm. And that's an ethos I take into all of my work, and Dibby does as well. And Chris, my co-artist director, and Ross, our producer, have the same ethos. So mm. I think it's really important because the arts, 
is um it's like the wild west it, it's i always say to my partner the arts is trash and it is it's mm-hmm. a it's a multi multi-billion pound industry with no structure it's like mm-hmm. it's like it's it's run like a cottage industry do you know mm-hmm. what i mean and actually it makes a lot of money and there's a lot mm-hmm. of exploitation goes on so i think it's really important to help others navigate their way through it because so much talent falls by the wayside because people don't know really what the next step is yeah, so that's absolutely. that's really that's really that that sort of stuff gets me out of bed as well as, you know, mm. the stuff getting up on stage and kind of getting the, the praise. Mm. And it must be really amazing to see people, their own careers grow, you know, people that you've nurtured and seen grow from like, you know, grassroots. That must be incredible to, to watch. So you mentioned first time. Um, obviously, this was a, a one man show that you created, um, uh, presented by by Dibby um, and the Waterside Arts as well. And it went on to critical and audience acclaim, um, did a tour of the UK and obviously went to Edinburgh Fringe in 20, 2019. Now, I didn't get the opportunity to see this play. I think you did some more shows after covid but i think i was in like last year but i was in between moving to brighton so i couldn't make it um so i was gutted because i'd read the book and obviously i'd followed your work and then bought the book and i thought it was incredible um and i thought it was you know really interesting funny inspiring and also really moving and it was a beautifully told told story um and i appreciate that you have talked about this subject matter a lot i mean when we started prepping for this podcast you kind of said you know actually this is uh, something that i often talk about but uh for anyone that hasn't heard of, of the play in the book and the story um could you give us a little bit of a information about what it's about and where people can find out more sure yeah so first time is an autobiographical story it's my story um of growing up gay and hiv positive so um i was diagnosed with hiv in 2003 which is the year i left school you know as we were just talking about the year mm. section 28 was repealed um and i had um not come out but i'd met someone uh, on a park bench um and and he was older than me and we kind of had this summer romance and as a result of that i contracted hiv and 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 kind of it was right at that time where i was just unpicking all the shame of being gay you know we mm-hmm. have to do all that work don't we when we come out of like yeah this is okay and that takes almost that takes like years of work and at the same time as i was just starting on that journey i got this thing and you know this this disease that i knew from you know as a gay disease we'd had really awful education in school about you know mm. hiv and and uh, and and it just felt like you know the kind of the 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 prophecy had come true you know don't be gay because you'll get aids and die mm-hmm. sort of thing mm-hmm. like coach Kyrie, mean girls but just not funny yeah. <laughs> um but like and so i just sat down and i didn't tell anyone for 15 years wow and um, well i did tell some people part my partners knew obviously and um and some friends knew but and and like tutors at college and university and stuff knew but i didn't tell my family and then you fast forward to 2000 and uh, 17 and you know I'm in a really toxic relationship um, my career is really really stagnated I've got really low self-confidence and self-worth I'm anxious all the time I'm really heavily reliant on drugs and alcohol you know I'm t- engaging in all sorts of like risky behavior you know and it's not uncommon to see that in, no, uh, no. in, in, in queer in gay men and queer people um, and I realized like you know that something needed to change and so I forced my hand because I've been trying to tell my family for 15 years and it never happened. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll make a show. And I make a lot of work, other work with people with their own stories. And I was Mm. like, I need to take a dose of my own medicine here. Like Mm -hmm. I'm always telling people to be brave Mm -hmm. and step up and be authentic. And I'm not being it in my own life. Mm. So I went on this journey. I got commissioned, uh, I got commissioned to write the show. And at that point I had to tell my family and, 
And yeah, it, it's it's a, a roller coaster ride through all of that stuff, really. You know, mm-hmm. through being diagnosed, the kind of the the hope and the kind of the 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 you know, those kind of looking back at that moment of coming out and meeting that person and the excitement of all that and then how all that kind of all came crashing down, the reality of mm. growing up, you know, growing up very, very quickly, age 16, like, you know, bang, you mm. are now an, you are now an adult, you need to deal with adult things. Um, and yeah, and it, and we, it was, to my surprise, it was a, a roaring success. When we first put it on, let's put on extra shows. Um, and then we took it to the Edinburgh Finch Festival and it just kept getting like five star review after five star review and amazing and and yeah it was a it was really took me took me totally by surprise how well mm. it was received and um finally we did a hundred shows on tour and then i finally said uh, enough is enough and <laughs> need to put this story to bed for a bit um, but yeah. the playtext that which you've mentioned um is available it's published now i can't believe i'm a published playwright i can't believe it myself it's amazing i've got my copy here and um i love <laughs> yeah as i said i've read it twice now i, I absolutely loved it and I, I think it's so brave to um and i don't mean that in a patronizing way but i you know to to own your art and or own your story and put it into something like that it's very you are really laying yourself bare it's vulnerable isn't it and i guess after carrying that for so long that must have been i don't know quite cathartic in one way but actually you know really scary in another because you are laying yourself completely bare when you've been used to kind of keeping that side of yourself locked away yeah. I guess yeah and I think you know that, that when we were making it Chris um, who was co-artistic director of Dibby and, and a really good friend of mine um, he was helping me with the writing process he's an amazing playwright and I've never mm. written a play you know and he kept saying these he's like you know I was putting all this stuff in you know like starting the show I've got white powder all over my face and you know I'm talking about all sorts of like going to sex saunas and all this sort of stuff and he was like do you really want to put all that in your parents are like going to be sat in the front row and there's like well, yeah, because the whole point is that there's been so much secrecy and secrecy breeds shame. Mm. And then shame leads to, you know, leads to kind of anxiety and low self-worth. So it, for me, it just had to be, you know, mm. like kind of warts and all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it feels when you watch the show or read it, it feels like I'm confessing everything. But, you know, it's mm. there's, there's plenty of stuff that isn't in there. You know, there's plenty of material for future shows. <laughs> for another show. And was <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, obviously this isn't something I, I'd written down to ask you, but it's, you know, was it when you said okay enough's enough for you as well was it a case of okay i just want to move on now and just almost like move forward because i guess you are reliving pain in some respect you're 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 getting to point of acceptance and you're owning your situation but i guess having to go through that time which you know you've been quite honest about it and said about you know affected your mental health ptsd all that kind of stuff it must have been really quite difficult to have to relive that over a hundred times um you must get to a point where you're like okay enough's enough we need to now change the narrative and do something different right yeah i think you know there's a lot of a lot of artists talk about this and about you know reusing mm. your own story particularly if you're being very completely autobiographical and kind of reliving trauma what impact does that have on the body mm. in the present you know and it you know writing the show itself was and, and doing the first shows was really really hard but a very cathartic process mm. and as, in a set in in essence like having really really good therapy mm-hmm. because because of what it enabled me to do is process the stuff that was actually living in me as trauma mm-hmm. and 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 if you're into a sort of like ptsd and stuff and i've had a lot of like trauma-based therapy um basically that um 
when you when you've gone through something traumatic often the brain doesn't process it in the mm-hmm. way that you process other memories and so what happens is you have something that happens to you in your life and it feels like that moment or something from that moment it triggers something in you and all the, the feelings and emotions and the physical sensations of what happened in the past come rushing back mm-hmm. and and when if you have really good trauma-based therapy or like write a show about it what it does is it makes you relive the memories in a safe way mm. and kind of file them away and now when i talk about them or when i perform the show it's like it's like i'm talking about another almost like another person or mm. it's like that is now in the past and i know it's in the past and i'm safe in the present so it really helped in that regard but p- performing it night after night you know i mean it's physically demanding anyway mm. it's a 70 mm. 75 minute show you, you know on tour there's only me and a stage manager uh, you know technical stage manager and it's like you are arriving at a venue at about 10 in the morning setting up doing your technical rehearsal having a short break performing taking it all down and probably getting to your hotel by about quarter to midnight and then doing it all again the next wow. day so <laughs> so you don't have the entourage to do all the nice stuff for you it's like you're doing everything wow there's no there's no glamour uh, <laughs> no glam squad um, but um but you know but it, it does it does have an impact you know yeah. even 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 kind of even though i say you no know, it doesn't feel immediately like I've, I'm, it's damaging to me but mm. you, I can feel in the weeks after I've done a run of shows you know how it's impacted me and you just have to be really aware of that you know I've I've committed to telling this story and I know the impact mm-hmm. you know I've seen the impact it has I get messages after every show you know people come back to post-show discussions and talk and and people send me messages I mean I mean I, I'm not trying to boast here but it's literally thousands of messages that's amazing saying you know i really want to be open about my hiv status or i'm gonna tell someone or you know or just like how it's impacted them in some way and mm. helped them so you know i kind of go okay i'm ready i'm prepared i'm gonna go through this period i know it's gonna end mm-hmm. and then and then um and then i can move yeah. on i guess that's a, a really healthy way to look at any sort of kind of dealing with any trauma or any any situation it's it's like stepping into it and saying okay but i'm safe i know i can move forward and i know i this is just what it is for today and then tomorrow it's a new day and i guess maybe that comes with a level of acceptance of what you've gone through but also um i guess growth as a person as well you 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 become stronger don't you when you deal with things and tackle them kind of head on um so i mean can you talk to me about how important it is for you and you know for your art um you know to tell stories for voices that are you know underrepresented like groups that don't have voice as such how how important is that for you to to make art of that kind yeah i mean one of the things i'm i i i've always been really passionate about is kind of is raising voices or amplifying voices that mm. we, we don't hear and you know who there's who gets access to be able to have a platform you know like i'm white cisgendered middle you know relatively middle class person you know i i fit really well into the theater world like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't you know and a lot of people don't feel like it's a space that's welcoming for them or that they can come across the threshold and there's lots of reasons for that and i think it's really important to look at how you can help with that and when we made first time you know I, i made it because i didn't see a representation a modern day representation of hiv all the representations were historical mm-hmm. and were often about illness and dying and i was like well actually people lots of people don't 
get ill and die now. Mm. You know? um, and and where where are those stories? But then I would then became really really like self aware that I was the the story that we already hear about HIV, which is a white gay man. Mm-hmm. You know, so when when we went when the pandemic hit and we were couldn't talk, we decided to do an outreach project called In Equal Parts, um, which was exploring HIV stigma through a range of different activities. And we made, as a result of that, we made three short films with three totally different stories. So um, Paul, who lived, you know, and campaigned through the 80s and 90s, and then Yvonne, who's a black British woman, um, and her experiences with HIV, and Mark, who is a straight white man who was an ex-injecting drug user. And those stories are not necessarily ones that we hear. And the impact that you see that that has had not just on them individually for telling it but the ripple effects it's had into their communities Mm -hmm. um because women living with hiv although about a third of people people living with hiv in the uk are women we don't often see or hear about women and and now there's like a growing sense of women with hiv coming forward and taking space which is really really great Mm. so you know it's so important to me and like I, i direct the candlelit vigil at Manchester Pride as well and this year um, we decided to um, we were approached by um, a campaign called These Walls Must Fall which is partly co-run by an organisation called Right to Remain and that's they support LGBTQ plus asylum seekers who you know escape unimaginable kind of suffering and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of and trauma and come here and then and then they have this a horrific long lengthy drawn out process with the home office who have to they have to try and pr- they have to prove their sexuality they get all these mm. horrific invasive questions and you know and so we amplified their voices as part of the vigil because i had a stage there five thousand people with more mm-hmm. people watching online at home and you know it was really important to, to to just give give the stage over to those people so we can hear their voices so so absolutely it is really really important to me and dibby and the work that we do that mm. we make sure we're doing that it's amazing no it's incredible i think i think it's so important and it is it's an opportunity isn't it for people just to kind of to step out of what they already know and to to listen to other people's experiences and and learn and and you know we'll talk about allyship in a moment but i think it that really speaks volumes in terms of allyship doesn't it it's about you know standing there for everyone making sure that everyone's got quality everyone's being counted for and, and and has a voice i think it's incredibly important um we talked last week about your new production you're working on, Toxic. Um, and I know that you can't say too much about this at the moment because it's still very much um, kind of in the works. Um, but can you give us a bit of an insight into what you're working on and um, when you hope to release it? So, yes. So Toxic is is the next chapter after first time. However, it's only semi-autobiographical, so there's going to be a bit more artistic license. Mm. Everything in first time is true, except... I wasn't. I it wasn't a disco on holiday. You've read the book, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. It was. It was a karaoke, but I didn't want to sing karaoke every night, so we didn't change it to a disco. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, it's. It's toxic. Is is looking at um, the impact of um, toxic gender norms and homophobia on on queer people's relationships, and specifically in this in this instance, it's going to be a gay male relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's slightly informed from my <laughs> bad experiences in relationships in very toxic sort of codependent relationships relationships where there's a lot of trauma bonding going on and in my in in the instance of my last relationship where it was actually abusive so um and I, I, I'm really interested in this I read the book 
um, Straight Jacket by Matthew Todd, which I mm. highly recommend to, any, to anyone out there. And it kind of hit me like a train. It was like, there is really something going on here. Mm. And, and people say similar thing about the Velvet Rage, about Velvet Rage as mm-hmm. well as a book. There's something going on here, I think, where there is some compound trauma from from growing up queer in a straight mm-hmm. world, in a, mm-hmm. a cishet world. And... And I think that's why we see this higher instance and this high rate of kind of alcohol use and drug, you know, drug dependency or drug use and risk taking behavior and stuff. And, you know, all those things are fun. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm no, I'm no nun you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> now, but I realized looking back how much I was using those to kind of numb, you know, different other feelings, yeah, yeah feelings mm. and, mm. and kind of how, how I was how sometimes I was complicit in behavior that I was looking at other people going, that's really toxic behavior and how I was actually complicit mm-hmm. in that as well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like a laugh a minute, but first time doesn't sound like a laugh a minute and it was quite funny. So, <laughs> um, but it's going to be, it's not a solo show. It's going to be a two hander. Amazing. Um, and it's going to have original music. So it's going to have like a, not, it's not a musical. Um, I am by, I'm no means a musical theatre performer. I'm not a triple threat. Um, but it's going to have some, uh, it's like new, new music and kind of a soundtrack written for it. Um, and it's sort of, p- p- sort of set in like a nightclub kind of environment. So it's going okay. to be kind of really upbeat, lots of like, I'm really interested in using like the, the, the sounds and kind of, the sounds and sights of like queer nightlife mm-hmm. to kind of to present the show. So hopefully it's going to be quite fast paced, in your face, funny, um, and, and quite hard hitting as well. And it's coming 2023, September 23. It's going to premiere in Manchester and then it will be on tour around the UK. Amazing. Can I come to Brighton? Please come to Brighton. Yes, hopefully. Yeah, Brighton. <laughs> we tried to come to Brighton with first time, but we just could not make it work. No, so no. Oh, we, will, we will work harder. We'll make sure we'll find somewhere in Brighton. Maybe Brighton show. Fringe 2024 sell out yes. shows there. You know, go. We'll plug that and make that happen. <laughs> oh, that sounds incredible. And it sounds so exciting to be, I mean, it's not just, you know, a story. It's like, when you talk about the music and the production and everything that's going into it, I mean, it, it really is such a dedication, isn't it, to the art? And um, it's your, I guess it becomes your baby. It's like this, you you have to really invest in this work. That sounds incredible. Mm. Um, does it give you a real thrill to wake up every day knowing that you're kind of contributing towards, I mean, I guess it's, you know, incredibly intense and pressured and you've got lots to do, but it must feel wonderful to wake up and think, okay, I'm contributing something in this kind of way most days. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think so. I think uh, you probably feel like that after you've done it. Not yes, <laughs> not during when you're doing the application. I'm starting. I'm. St- I've got a week. My first writing week next week. Okay. And I'm sort of slightly dreading it because the writing process is really kind of it's quite a lonely, mm-hmm. isolating, and very frustrating process for anyone who's ever written anything. They will know that. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, you always like complete something. And you say never again. I'll never put myself through it. And then you mm. do it. So, but yeah, it, it is. And I think you know, we do. My work has a lot of. I don't just do the show. There's a lot of outreach work goes around mm-hmm. it. Community-based work. There was with First Time, um, and there there will be with Toxic. I've already been doing. I've been doing workshops with um, uh, a charity called Survivors, which supports male survivors of abuse, um, and I've just started some with another organisation called Men's Room, and we've had some conversations. I've done like Insta Live, so I'm really I'm really interested in. I want to learn. Like I don't know all the mm. answers. I'm an mm. artist. Like I don't know why things are the way they are. I don't mm. know why one in four gay bisexual men experience domestic abuse. 
after the age of 16 which is the mm. stat that you know really kind of got me interested in making this show um i don't know and i don't have the answers either mm. but i think when we start that conversation we can learn from each other and we can feel Absolutely. less isolated about our experiences and so the show is one part of it but all those other conversations that happen create this this community that goes we can talk about these things mm. um, and we don't need to feel isolated or alone and mm-hmm. um, uh, you know lots of people go through life is hard like mm, yeah <laughs> you know, like, absolutely. Life, is, life is hard and we should talk about it like there's nothing wrong with that no and it only takes one conversation doesn't it or just you know one person seeing a show or reading a book and saying oh okay i felt like that that's i need to talk about this i need to have this yeah. conversation and it's a, it's a ripple effect doesn't it it then affects so many different people's lives it's incredible um no i'm, I'm really looking forward to um to hearing more about it and um, i will definitely come and watch uh next year if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. So we must talk about It's a Sin. We mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and you know, I just love the show so much. As I said, I was in love, heartbroken, sad, happy, joyful, or every emotion you can ima- imagine. And it's my fault because I binged watched it in five hours, literally on more four. I woke up the next morning and I was telling my husband about it and I was like literally crying at the same time because I felt like I was grieving. I was like, this show just affected me so much. And I think it's everyone that I've spoken to has has said the, the same thing. I think it was so powerful. Um, and it was such an important story to tell around the community, which I think just telling it from the com- community's lens as well, rather than, you know, the propaganda and all the misinformation from that time. So how did the project come about for you and um what was it like being involved in in the project uh well i was making first time when i knew that you know i heard on the grapevine that russell was writing what was it then originally called boys it wasn't called it's a sin it was okay. it was called boys originally um and um and i said to my agent i was like we have to get russell to come and see my show and he splits his time between Manchester and, and his home in Wales so you know it, it, it transpired that he couldn't make it to the show in the end but um, a friend of his had see, had been to see it and had messaged him so he knew about like the show and his friend had said you've got to come see this show um, and so anyway I was really unprofessional because I was just like I, I just need I just need to talk to him like <laughs> I want to <laughs> get in there so I messaged him on Instagram and he got straight back to me because he'd already heard about the show and he'd already heard about the work that I was doing so we I didn't expect a response um, but um, he said yeah let's go for coffee so then I sat in Cafe Nero on King Street in Manchester 
no, not King Street, Cross Street. And um, and like just literally like pinching myself. I was like, I can't believe I'm actually sat here. Amazing. <laughs> with T. Davis. And he's such a lovely guy. And he mm. was he was still writing and he wanted to hear about my story because he wanted to that the Colin Morris Jones gets it from his first time, although in a different era, but you know, he I think he was still part of his research. And then at the end of that conversation he just sort of stood up and he went, Well, you're too old for the lead roles, but there might be a role in there for you, with sort of like a twinkle in his eye, which was mm. Amazing. And then his producer, um, the producer of the show, came to see first time and then I was invited to audition. Um, and I actually had to do a self-tape because I was going up to Edinburgh the next day. Oh, no, I was mm-hmm. going up to Edinburgh. I was in Edinburgh when they wanted me to go to audition, so I had to do a self-tape. Um, and so I went up to Edinburgh. I did the self-tape and then sent it off and then kind of forgot about it because I had this whirlwind of Edinburgh and, you know, and, and mm-hmm. all the, the stress of that. And then I remember... Um, we have this blanket thing when when doing shows in Edinburgh, you get lots you'll get lots of reviews, particularly shows getting traction. So I I have a social media ban from like sort of like lunchtime onwards, and my show is about four o'clock, I think. So I didn't see any reviews prior to going on stage, and then afterwards, you know, I'd switch my phone on, or my producer would come over and be like, "You've had another review, you know, here's the review," and he did that. He came up and said, "You've had a five star review in the stage, which is like, you know." amazing yeah yeah it's yeah. just like this is so i was on cloud nine let's go and have a um you know go for a drink and then i got a phone call from my agent to tell me that i'd got a role in it's a sin and oh, i was gosh. like oh great wow. i just like best day ever what a day <laughs> yeah absolutely and what was it like being part of the the cast because i mean from watching it i could only imagine and i you may tell me if i'm wrong here there was just must be an incredible cast to work with because everyone just seemed to gel so well as characters and I've seen interviews afterwards and there's a real sense of camaraderie around all the people. So was it true to that? And did you have a lovely time being a part of the show? Yeah, I mean, making TV is, I mean, I've done a bit of TV work prior to It's a Sin, mm. but, but you know, theatre is like where I'm trained and my first passion really. Mm. And it's so different because theatre, you're like all in it together, like yeah. everyone's together. And then TV, because of how it's filmed, mm. like you you often don't see people that much. Right. Like, yeah. you know, you do your read through and everyone's there and then, and then you kind of like go through it. And like, unless you're in a scene with somebody, like time is money, you're not going to be on set unless no. you're needed but you know the times when you are together they're really great and it's a testament to Red Productions that made it as well Mm. they are such a lovely production company there's a Mm -hmm. real it's as much about them because they're the team that are consistent for you coming onto set they're the Mm -hmm. people that are there all the time and and they are the ones that make it make it work and they make you feel relaxed and happy and chilled out and you know Mm -hmm. it's such a stressful environment because you know like I say time is money you know Mm -hmm. it's like yeah but, yeah. but yeah it was just a great great experience all around yeah it well it it looked incredible I mean um and I, I can think of worse, uh, worse cast members to be um, in bed with than <laughs> than Ollie Alexander. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I wasn't envious I, at all, Nathaniel. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, lots of people say that, but doing intimate scenes is just not that sexy, really. And one of the great things for it to sin was that there's a new kind of industry standard that's being set now around intimate scenes where you have an intimacy coordinator so you actually do some work with them prior to going on set which i was really pleased about because you know you 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 when you're putting your body so close to somebody else mm. you know you you're really really trusting and and it can trigger things in you emotionally that you weren't aware of and mm-hmm. so really important to kind of go through all that consent but also it just means that when you're on set you're really relaxed like and you can perform the scene without really having to worry yeah um, 
but you know it's it's not that sexy when you've got a camera i mean literally like here mm, mm. <laughs> and then you have to do it like five times yeah and then, <laughs> you know and then and but you know that that scene i think took about four hours four or five wow. hours to film. that's you know that's like how complicated it is yeah. Um, so we just had a nice time. We just lay in bed and chatted between takes. Between takes. <laughs> really, oh, yeah. he. Um, really nice. I think I watched an interview with him actually when he was talking about the um, uh, like the not coaching is the wrong word, but like the support that you had in yeah. between. Um, and because I think someone had asked a question about it, and obviously there was a lot from his perspective he was involved in. And I think that he, he was saying, you know, um, it was a regular thing that actually you had support on set, and I thought that was really nice actually because again lots of care obviously went into making sure that everyone felt comfortable and the production was you know really well thought through and stuff so that's that's great yeah absolutely and it's it you know you have you have a stunt coordinator on set to keep people safe if there's a, if there's a stunt being done and it's exactly the same you know f- physically first of all first and foremost because if you do in some of the stuff you have to do you're mm. doing it over and over again but also like say emotionally and kind of psychologically but also kind of all that thing around consent and you know we've, mm. we've had the me too movement and you know there is power there's a power imbalance you know if a, mm. if a writer director or a producer is asking you the performer to do something there is a power imbalance and mm. it, there needs to be kind of these systems and structures in place to make sure that that isn't kind of taken advantage of and that's yeah. why it's really important and people kind of laugh a little bit when you say about an intimacy coordinator but until you've been the performer doing it i've had i've done without intimacy coordinator i've done intimate scenes and i've done with and with is incredible and and they they just it just makes sure that everyone there is safe and that there is no future you know accusation or you know or anything against somebody absolutely it's the right kind of procedure has been followed incredibly important you mentioned tv before and i'm not sure if this was right or not were you in cucumber i was in cucumber yes with with looking like the third member of brass <laughs> with white blonde hair like cropped shore and blue okay because I, I saw so when i was looking at you doing the research for the podcast that came up as cucumber and then i i couldn't think of you being in it because we watched cucumber i think goodness it was about must have over 10 years ago right cucumber and it was mm. and that was russell t davis as well wasn't it it I was yeah, yeah yeah blink and blink and you'll miss me i was i think episodes i'm, I'm in the, the really the, the the best episode the one um obviously because i'm in it um <laughs> <laughs> like the one the one the flashback episode where we see lance's whole life okay um, and i'm his I, I played i played his first boyfriend oh uh, okay so really really small part um i'm still traumatized um, by the last episode if i'm completely honest with you that's the one yeah with the golf the club yeah oh my god yeah. just i was not expecting that and we literally turned the television off and we're just like okay should we make a cup of tea and go to bed yeah. like, that was just traumatic well, russell but russell so Russell wanted it to be in that. That's the way he put it at the end because he wanted that reaction. But actually, mm. it was like, in terms of the ratings and stuff, because it didn't get the best ratings, right. it was. It was. He said it was just put the wrong way around because mm. the drama was right at the end, and, yeah. and unfortunately, it didn't hook people in quick enough yeah. to to stick around. And I think that's you know. But I think a, a bold decision as a writer, TV writer, and a dramatist to wait mm. until mm. that moment because I think it does have so much has such a bigger impact on you as a viewer if you've mm. gone through five episodes oh just heartbreaking characters. though and just so yeah. dramatic i remember at the end just thinking oh my god like mm. oh just yeah yeah so hard if anyone hasn't seen cucumber it's it's worth a watch but it is a little bit traumatic at the end i will warn yes, you <laughs> um so any more plans for tv have you got any other things in the pipeline or is it something you'd like to explore more of um 
nothing in the pipeline as uh, at, at the minute um mm. you know i've been doing some i've been doing some auditions been doing some self-tapes but i'm so busy all the time my agent's mm. just like you don't have time to do this mm-hmm. um because i run the theater company day to day um and then i'm obviously waking toxic um we'll see if the right thing comes up you know occasionally there's like little jobs and opportunities that arise and mm-hmm. i would love to, i would love to do more um i would love to to kind of hone that that skill and that craft and mm. and and explore that more but we'll see what happens we'll see, see what, what happens I, i'm i'm not i'm not one of these people that's like like this this these people have like this career trajectory in their mind of where they want to go and mm. you know what they want to do and people are like oh you've been it's a sim what's next i'm like i don't know <laughs> isn't that lovely to take that pressure off yourself and just go with yeah. it and yeah I think that's you know if that's the if that is the pinnacle of my tv acting career i'm more than happy yeah more absolutely happy. <laughs> yeah incredible it was incredible it really was um I mean, we've talked about allyship. I, it's very, very clear that it's incredibly important to you, uh, Nathaniel. I think the the main thing I really want to ask you about this is what you'd like to see change in the queer community over the next 12 months. Is there anything in particular you think this is really needs to shift and, and I'd like to see this happen? Yeah, um, we we talk, we kind of highlighted it at the, 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 the Manchester Pride, some of the events that we did this year. And I don't I don't work for Pride, but I, I'm a freelancer mm. for them. I do quite a lot of curating for them. Um, and there was... There was um, an incident on Canal Street, a racist incident, um, uh, 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 a, a Vogue collective called House of Spice, which are um, uh, an Asian house collective, um, were you know racially abused in two bars by staff members, um, and you know we we highlighted that this happens all the time mm. on Canal Street, and I'm just until those spaces are you know equitable for everybody mm-hmm. then they're not the queer spaces that i want in our community mm, absolutely and and i think you know there's just still a lot of work to be done on mm. picking um the structures of racism within mm-hmm. our country and within our community as well our community is not immune to those things and um and I think for me, that's the big, big thing. And we're seeing it in Manchester more now. And I don't know about other places, but Manchester Pride particularly have done lots and lots of work. And they're not they're not a perfect organisation mm. either. No one is. But they've done lots and lots of work on this. You know, their, their, their lineup at Manchester Pride this year was fantastic. Like mm-hmm. it was... Not not like diverse as like ticking a box, but like you know, like they were the they they sent out the stats and like I think it was like eighty five or ninety percent of all performers were LGBTQ plus, and I was like, amazing. that's amazing. Yeah, like yeah. that's a real turnaround from like the old Pride model, which you know is kind of bringing pop star big pop yeah, stars. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and they had like a trans takeover of one stage. They had Fat Pride. They had Black Pride. It just felt like they were really doing that work to go. This mm. festival is for everyone inclusive youth pride family pride so it felt like felt great but you know there was also a racist incident uh, reported from Salford pride recently in Manchester and you know and it's happening it's still happening and I just feel for my black and brown friends I just don't Mm. I can't imagine what it feels like to go I want to have a night out I want to go to this bar but then feel like they can't Mm. they're not welcome or uncomfortable in that space so for me white people we got to step it up we've got you got to unlearn what you've been taught around race 
um, mm. and you everyone is racist you don't turn around to me and say you're not racist I'm racist I was brought up in a racist society we have to one pick it you have to do that work and that's our responsibility not black and brown mm. people's responsibility mm -hmm. yeah absolutely it's it's the whole education piece isn't it it's you know we have to educate ourselves as to why it's important it's not for um for people of color to tell you know white people how they can be anti-racist it's you know we've got to do the work ourselves it's incredibly important um, yeah, and you've and got to sorry to interrupt no, you've got it like a friend of mine you've, you've got to have you've got to start the conversation i think a lot of people mm. are worried and i think in the past i've been worried as well about getting it wrong mm -hmm. um and a friend of mine um who's a um black british she's a she was on she was actually on our writing course and she was saying that she'd been she was in this lesbian book club she's the only black woman in the lesbian book club which is fine you know so she said often that's how i move the world you know and that's that's i'm used to it that wasn't an issue but um, they read a book um, which was about like racism in America, and it was really quite hard hit. Quite a, 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 she had quite an emotional response to the book, and she was really excited to go to this group and talk about this book, you know, and start mm. have these conversations. And she said no one said anything, mm. and she was like, "Was it because they were too scared with me present?" to talk about these things mm -hmm. like and try and unpick it and she's like if we can't have the conversation how are we ever going to move forwards yeah like you've got it you've, you've got to be willing to just talk about it and say look you just have to say look i might get this wrong but i'm just trying to open this dialogue mm -hmm. like meet We've... me in the middle yeah, we've said this so many times on this podcast. It's just about being respectful, being kind, being honest. It's like if we, yeah. you know, if someone comes to you in the pub and says, I'm not being funny, but you know instantly they're going to say something which is just purely <laughs> offensive. So it's like, please don't do this. If yeah. someone comes to you and says, I've got some questions. I know I need to educate myself, but actually, could you help me? Let's yeah. have the conversation. That's amazing. And that, that should be you know, appropriate for, for any situation, whether it's race, sexuality, ability, whatever. But you're right, we've got to keep the conversation going. And as long as we're respectful, there's no reason why it can't happen. Um, but yeah, I think I actually did a podcast a few weeks ago with um, a trans sibling from the community. And they were talking about how, you know, they were being very honest in the podcast about their feelings around their own transition. Um, and they kind of said, you know, some people just don't know what to ask or what to say because they're so scared they're going to get it wrong because there's so much fear out there. And it's yeah. like... We've got to we've got to move the conversation on so actually people aren't scared to have the conversations and, and get it wrong. It's yeah. just yeah, it's it's just so important for so many different you know um, communities or you know makeups of different communities. I think um, so. No, that's that's really really important. Um, this is the quick fire round, which you're not at all prepared for, Nathaniel, are you? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I've not I've not read your email and made some little notes to make sure that I've got answers ready at all. That has not happened. <laughs> but seriously, before we move on to the fun bit, thank you so much for all that you've talked about today. It's been a really amazing conversation and this really has been a dream come true to interview. So I'm I'm really grateful. So thank you so much. Oh, it's very sweet. My pleasure. So queer icon. Oh, queer icon. Okay, we're going straight in. We're Kim going. Woodburn. Let's do it. Kim Woodburn. <laughs> Tell um, me why. <laughs> Don't start with just, me, lovey. <laughs> she is. She is camp personified. Yeah. She is hilarious. That that video that comes out every Christmas, which is her in the Big Brother house, and it's the tw is it like it's like um, the hours hour by hour on Christmas Day, and it's so funny, and I just think she is camp as tits. Is that where she goes, adulterer? 
Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're an adulterer. <laughs> um, yeah. But failing, failing Kim, like if I have a serious one, it's probably Russell T Davies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's incredible. But, I mean, Kim Woodburn, I still watch, um, it's still one of the funniest things on television ever, the eating challenge on I'm a Celebrity <laughs> with Katie Price and where she's eating the kangaroo's testicles and then you just hear Katie Price go, is it salty? And then she goes, like, like gags and stuff. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's so funny. To watch. That, oh, that is British culture. That yeah. is British culture right there. Yeah, she's like, oh, love it. God, it's ghastly. She's just, you know, she's got this real... She, I love her. She's brilliant. She's so, so good. Have you seen the, um, the Destiny's Child Independent Woman remix of her saying don't start with me phil on this morning i have not oh my going, goodness i'm going to google that as soon as we finished she goes we're just asking you a question it goes question and she goes no you're not <laughs> phil and it's honestly watch it it's, it's really good it's really good um queer anthem uh that is relax by frankie goes to hollywood oh okay cool did you have one of the t-shirts as well <laughs> no frankie says relax no i don't think i i do have one of those i ju- what i love about this song other than it being like like the filthiest mm. beat you've ever heard like mm-hmm. it is just incredible um i just love the kind of the the t- total brazenness of is that a word of a brazen yeah. attitude of like you know frank goes to hollywood in an era where gays were being like demonized you know mm. vilified hiv and aids was being mm. used and weaponized against the community to just do such an overtly sexual sexualized song mm. you know is incredible and the fact that it got you know banned you know and all this kind of stuff i just think brilliant it's like yeah. what an amazing song and it's just it's just a banger anyway it makes it all the better doesn't it if it's had a bit yeah. of controversy i think definitely <laughs> I uh, do you know I I've never really been a, a fan of the Pet Shop Boys um and this the song isn't really their version but I and again going back to the show but I absolutely love Ollie and Elton's version of It's a Sin they did it at the Brits yeah. I have yeah, listened to that on Apple so many times like and it's just I don't know it's just the beat of it it's just amazing and it just I don't know it kind of says everything you want to say as a queer person growing up in the 80s yes. they're just yeah. oh my god i absolutely love it it's amazing so i think that's probably my my anthem at the moment um last book that you read um i literally finished it last night and closed it it's called bad gays um, a, a homosexual history um and it's fantastic it's about bad gays basically okay. it's about people from history like so like obviously as like when we're, we're moving towards like queer emancipation and liberation, uh-huh. we like celebrate certain people along that journey. But this is like, what about those people that we kind of like are sweeping under the carpet because mm. they don't fit the narrative, mm. you know, because we're not all good. So it's really fascinating. It's based on a podcast called Bad Gays. Okay. turned it into a book. So if you're not a reader, you could check out the podcast. And it's just brilliant. It just goes like through people from history who were known to, uh, you know, to have same-sex relationships or um or relations and just talk about their problematic history and it's okay. great i'm such a geek so i love anything like that i'm not yeah. really a big fiction reader and um, but prior to that i read i did read a fiction book called black milk which is a really <gasps> book. i've I read that. that yeah it's yeah, good isn't it yeah, yeah yeah and oh was it was it black milk or was it something other milk i there was another one with milk or was that the same one? <laughs> oh, i don't know was it black milk that i read it was something milk, and it was about a, a queer person who was part of a Jehovah's Witness family. Yes, that's what is it's that, is that that is the book, yeah. Yeah. Is, okay. I'm yeah. Not, that, I'm not getting the name wrong, am I? You've made. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's something milk, though. But yeah, I read that too. I read that last year. That's really good. Really good book. Um, no, it's not. Co- I've got the name wrong. I think we have to do this. Bit. We have to do this bit again. 
<laughs> it's okay. <laughs> something milk. Oh, was it something like um? I can't. I can't. I, yeah, anyway, anyway, it's a really good book. <laughs> but I read that too because it was real. I I loved that story, and um, obviously it was a very difficult story to read. But but it was you know um, again so much kind of difficulties and segregation within like different communities like the Jehovah's Witness community the black community the family yeah. being queer it was just it was such a complex read but it was I couldn't put it down I thought it was just yeah. so well written it was, it was brilliant yeah. so so good I've actually got a like I'm trying to turn here and not um not look at the microphone but I've got a like a, a really big shelf of books um and I've got a new one called Fire Island which I'm going to read and I think that's all set mm. in the states and um yeah, I've got I've got loads of queer books to read. I've not uh, read um, it yet. Is it Young Young Mungo Mango? You heard of that one? <laughs> no, uh, we're not doing very well on titles. Are we're we? not. No, I, yeah, yeah. It may be called this, or it might be called yeah. that, but it's, it's really good. Everyone just needs to go into the local queer bookshop, find their own yeah. books. Don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> anyway, that's cool. We'll move on. This is not so quick fire now, is it? Um, your dream TV job. Do you know my dream TV job would be to present a documentary? Like oh. I would love to do that. Uh, maybe, maybe like about queer history. Maybe mm. I could do Bad Gays, the TV show. I don't know. That'd be amazing. But I, yeah, I really, I'd love to do some presenting because um, I, it's a, I'm like I said, I'm a bit of a geek, and so I, mm. I love like I love like delving into a subject matter and kind of exploring it. So, any oh, any agents out there that are looking for a new. I was going to say young, but I'm not young. I'm 35. Uh, a hip and happening queer. With awesome hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm your guy. Um, do you know, it's my dream to do a TV like presenting job and to like interview people and to do documentaries and stuff. So maybe we need to tag team on this. and Yeah, um, let's do it. Let's write a show and go to someone with it. Let's yeah, be, pro- okay. you know, it's not, I'm reading the five second rule at the moment by Mel Robbins. Have you heard of this? No. Okay, and it's all about how... Is it called that? It's not called the 10 second rule. It is called the five second rule. And it's basically how we're always in our own way. And actually, we have to make stuff happen. And you have an idea in your head. And basically, it takes five seconds to find reasons as to why that won't work or an excuse. So I'm going to go for a run today. And it's like, five, four, three, two, one. Oh, no, it's a bit cold outside. I'm not going to do that. So it's like, you count down and take action. So, and it was saying about actually, you know... The TV producer that you want to work with isn't going to come knocking at your door. The play that you want to write isn't going to happen. You've got to make stuff happen. So um, you've got my number. Let's make this show Let's happen, do it. Daniel. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, your favourite decade and why? My favourite decade is the 1980s because okay. I was born in it. Yeah. So everything changed. <laughs> the world changed. 1986, I was born. I was um, 84. Yeah. yeah. I think I think because I was, I was, I was obviously born, and but I was... I probably my memories probably start in the 90s mm. the 80s is like this decade that i can sort of sort of know i was part of but also feels like totally different to the world yeah that i know or knew growing up um but i just i just love it i want to see like archive footage of the 80s mm. i'm just like what it was a bonkers decade yeah like the size of the shoulder pads and the you know just like the colors and the the huge giant phones that people were talking mm. into and just but also i think a really you know a, a tumultuous decade as well of change mm. and mm-hmm. um and but i think what you get in the 80s is really really incredible music and yes. art 
And that often happens at times of social and political upheaval and change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think at the minute, because we're going through one of those times um, as well, I think, you know, you're going to see, we're going to look back and go, my God, the art and the music and stuff that was coming out at that time was amazing. Really but amazing. I love, I love, love, love the 80s. Yeah. Do you know, it's funny because I think my earliest memories of the 90s as well, because I was 84. So I think one of my earliest memories is kind of like when I was about five or six um and being at my nan's house and stuff but whenever i think about the 80s i automatically think of band-aid do they know it's christmas i don't know why <laughs> but it just pops into my head because it was just that time of it's always the video that's on telly every year without fail and i don't know it's just it's nostalgic so um maybe it's just a love of christmas that i have i, I don't know but whenever i think <laughs> of the 80s band-aid pops in my head <laughs> yeah there you go um ultimate holiday destination where would you love to go uh this is really hard because i've i've been to quite a lot of places and i was like do i choose one of the places i've been to because i know or should i Uh choose somewhere else um i i've no i've never been to south america okay i would love to go to south america i would actually both south central and north america that i basically just said half the world i understand that (laughs) those are places i haven't been i would love to go i I really love like desert environments i know that's very very strange but i traveled through the outback of australia um for like two months and i i'm i really love like barren places mm. <laughs> it's strange no but i'd love to i'd love to travel through like sort of like the some of those places in america um like i kind of like the idea of like a road trip maybe through is it kind maybe. of like the freedom when you said about barren is it kind of like the freedom like there's no distractions it's just you being with yourself kind of experience in the moment is that what you get from it do you think yeah i think because in the uk we have so little wilderness left uh-huh. um you know we we, we go we get, get out in nature and actually you're going into farmland when we say in our nature like we've been pretty much cultivated most of the land in the uk mm. there's very little wilderness left obviously there is some but that sense of like you can drive through the australian outback or yeah. parts of america or central america and south america and it's like it's just vast yeah like vast nothing and yeah it is it's that sense of like disattaching from mm. everything that we know and from the real from the kind of world that we've built mm. um, and i like that it's a sense of freedom it's slightly scary mm-hmm. um, and thrilling because you know like if you break down what's going to happen yeah absolutely um, yeah. No, I think that's really ex- exciting. Um, I watched a couple of years ago uh, Miriam Margulies' tour of Australia. She went in a camper van and literally went around to all the different places in Australia. And A, it was hilarious because it's Miriam Margulies. Um, but it, again, it was so lovely because just the beauty of the land that she was kind of driving around and stuff, it was so remote. And I think there's a sense of freedom that she had. You could see like just the enjoyment of being in those spaces. It just, yeah, mm. I, I completely get that. Um, yeah. Your favourite album of all time this is really hard because people don't really buy albums anymore do they like mm. it's not a thing is it but um uh i was thinking really really hard i was thinking back to when i did buy albums when i was in my teenage years uh-huh. um and I, I was thinking what's the what's the one album i listened to the most yeah and i think it probably was uh christina aguilera stripped oh my goodness yes it's a <laughs> yeah. great album it's like yeah. it tells a story from start to finish um and... i want you to get a little bit closer come to see yeah. that with me. <laughs> Oh my god, that's literally, literally obviously was speaking to my queer soul <laughs> yeah. when I was like in my late teenage years. I just think it's a phenomenal album um, and it's so well produced mm. um, and you know that was like her dirty era wasn't it yes. but actually there's so many songs on there that are, are just so much better than Dirty. Dirty's a banger obviously it gets you on dancing on the mm. dance floor but, um, but yeah. uh, 
I agree. Exactly. It's such a great album. album. Such, yeah, I saw it live in 2003 at Wembley Arena mm. uh, when I was 18. So I saw the actual strip show and it was incredible. Like, she was, I mean, she was, uh, I hate to say it, but like, that was like, I don't think she's had anything. She's had some great albums, but that was her album. I mean, it was just that was such her, a That was yeah, her pinnacle, yeah. That was, yeah, absolutely. That was her thriller or her whatever, her lemonade <laughs> or, you know. Um, but yeah, I God, the show was incredible. But I agree with you. And actually, when we left um, when we left Ipswich last year and moved to Brighton, um, do you remember the song Cruise on the album? Yeah. Because I'm leaving today. Yeah. So yeah, that was yeah. like the song that I played as we left. It was like, <laughs> yes, this is a this is a pure gay pop moment. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I love that. I love that you soundtrack your own life. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's incredible. It's incredible. Um, and one word to sum up 2022 so far. A shit show. because everything's been going on with politics and all the it's just i want to go back to precedented times where everything's unprecedented these days Mm. can we not just go back to like having setting a precedent that's nice and we all just stick to it that Mm -hmm. would be lovely yeah no i get it i get it absolutely nathaniel this has been amazing thank you so so much for um talking with me today um again if anyone hasn't read the book and obviously they can't see the play again but if they haven't read the book first time which is the screenplay um check it out because it's incredible can't wait to see toxic uh, next year when that comes out and um i'm gonna be in touch we're gonna write a show we're gonna make this happen yeah let's do it let's, let's let do it make it happen make let's it happen it. absolutely but yeah look after yourself and thank you so so much and um i look forward to catching up with you soon thanks very much take care bye cheers oh my goodness i loved that conversation so so much nathaniel is an amazing human being and such a lovely person they were so warm and friendly and just wonderful to speak to and a real inspiration i love their work and i really hope i get to speak to them one day again they were fantastic please check out their website and get yourself a copy of first time it's an incredible read and you can also look at their twitter and their instagram for all the latest updates of their work but i really appreciate that conversation so thank you so much nathaniel and thank you all for listening until next time don't forget to like share and subscribe to this podcast you can follow me on instagram facebook and twitter my handle is at fluey actually you can also check out my website fluyactually.com. 